0: All right, good morning, church. It's my joy to be with you here this morning. My name's Rick Myers. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Community. And let me tell you, I want to extend my welcome to you here this morning, especially if you're a guest checking us out for the first time. Um, thank you for making making it a choice to be here today. Um, today, we're going to continue our journey through the book of James. And today, I get the joy of talking about the issue of conflict, because we have come to chapter 4, right? And I have entitled my message today, What is Wrong With You? It's a very, very endearing title, I know. You know, now, conflict, I think, is something that it's safe to say that we all come up against, Right? I know I've had my fair share of conflicts, um, just ask my wife. Conflict has reared its ugly head in my life time and time again. Now, I want to take you back to my early grade school days. Okay, I was up there at St. Michael's in Overly. It was in the fifth grade. We were at recess, and we were playing tag. Now, I was wearing my new members-only jacket. Okay. Now, this was, this was the thing, and I, and I look good in my jacket. But we're playing tag, and I'm running around, and this girl, this girl is chasing me. Okay, So she's trying to tag me. So she gets me, she grabs my jacket, and she rips my jacket. Yeah, that's what I said. I said, yeah, oh, my goodness. Like, I was in disbelief, and I grew angry. So I looked this girl square in the eye and said, I'm going to sue you. I'm taking you to the people's court. <laughs> because people's court was like where he went and got things done in the 80s. I watched it on TV. It was the court show. You know, Judge Wapner was going to set things right. I mean, I remember every episode they would say, don't take the law into your own hands. You take them to court. Oh, there, there's a picture of my members only jacket. That's Corey Feldman from Goonies. But that's, that's the jacket. That's the jacket, the coveted jacket. So I remember this girl, after I said that, just begging me not to sue her, like, like her family didn't have a lot of money and she didn't want to live on the streets, you know, but my extreme reaction to this little conflict, burned in my brain. You know, so you grow and you hope you grow up a little and you go to high school and I went to Calvert Hall, all boys school, okay, and guys bicker with one another and these bickering sometimes turn into major conflicts. So a lot of the time, these conflicts would end with the two disputing parties at Double Rock Park on a Friday night to duke it out. Now, this really didn't lead to anything good, right? I mean, you'd get a few few punches in, but both parties walked away rather disappointed because I don't think it really proved anything. You know, so you grow up and you see conflict and you see the way people handle, you you observe. I mean, everyone is so different with how they handle conflict. Some people are just explosive while others withdraw. Some people just want to fight, you know, physically and with their words. And some people just run away. Oh, but, you know, but some of us get married and then the conflict ends. No, no. What I learned in marriage is that you have two very different people with two very different ways of handling conflict. So you learn to work through conflict with your spouse. You know, maybe you have a roommate or a close friend, and it just seems like your relationship is always about the drama. You have coworkers, right? At a job, you got to go work, but there's coworkers there, and guess what? More conflict awaits. Oh, and, and kids, right? You have little kids, big kids, medium-sized kids, young adults, parents all like living under the same roof. It's like a ticking time bomb for conflict. So the bottom line in all that is that conflict just seems to be everywhere. So here's my hope today. My hope is that James is going to give us a better view of conflict, specifically the source of conflict and how it can be resolved. You know, last week, Don talked about wisdom, and he explained about two types of wisdom. There's wisdom that comes from God, so a wisdom that comes from above, that's pleasing to him, and that's good for our lives. Jesus being the personification of that wisdom. But there's also a wisdom that comes from the world, and it's of the devil. It's a worldly wisdom. It's a wisdom that puts you in the center of the universe. Now, this type of wisdom goes directly against God. You see, worldly wisdom views life from a very limited perspective. It doesn't see anything in light of eternity, but only in a here and now perspective. Worldly wisdom will ask the question, what's the best thing for me in this situation? Worldly wisdom centered around you, your wants, your desires. So anything that happens, your first thought is like, how does this affect me? So I'm hoping that you're beginning to think and see when worldly wisdom is applied to resolving conflicts, it can be disastrous. So worldly wisdom asks the question, what is best for me? Because after all, life is about me. So that section in chapter 3, contrasting the two types of wisdom, leads us here to 4, where James is going to address the issue of conflict. So let's read James 4, 1-10. to so what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask, do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you, know, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Ah, Heavenly Father, help us this morning as we look into your word once again. Help it transform our lives. Let your presence be among us as we examine your wisdom Thank you for always being faithful to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My outline today is very simple. I'm a simple man and it's a simple outline. Number one, the cause of conflict. Two, the cure for conflict. And my big idea today is that through God's grace, we have the power to resist worldly desires and find peace. Pretty simple. All right, so as we've learned in previous weeks, James originally wrote this letter The Jewish Christians that were once associated with the church in Jerusalem, but now they have found themselves scattered throughout the region. And James, who's the loving, caring leader that he was, wanted to address some topics that were just plaguing these early congregations. And conflict was one of the topics that needed to get addressed. You see, God's people were entangled in conflicts that were tearing relationships and communities apart. So, he starts this by saying, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Like, how would you answer that question? Why do people fight? I mean, think about the last conflict that you had. Last week, yesterday, on the way to church this morning, you know, you you all know how it goes. So, if James were here and asked what caused that quarrel, what caused that conflict, what would you say? Would you blame like that so-called friend that just always seems out to hurt you? The, the coworker that just makes your job like 10 times harder? Or maybe, you know, you have that family member that just knows where to poke you, right? He knows your buttons. Maybe, maybe some of you would be like pointing to the person next to you here today. Like, here he is, here she is. The, the source of it all, it's their fault. If, if, they, if they had just done this or that, said this or that, this could have all been avoided. But James would say, ah, not so fast, because he follows up with another question, really a question to answer the first question. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He would say that the source of your conflicts come from your own self. You know, the man in the mirror, Now, I don't think that James is saying that other people don't play a role in the conflicts that you find yourself in. I mean, both sides contribute, but, you know, using the words of Jesus, I think James would say, hey, look at the plank in your own eye before looking at the speck in your brother's. You see, we all have these things, these worldly passions, these desires that rule us from the small things to the big things. You know, I, have a, I had a very small desire. For me, I love to play pickleball, pickle right? And some of you will look at me and say, what in the world is a pickleball? Well, let me tell you, you're missing out. It's like tennis and ping pong had a baby. You know, so I started playing this game like a year ago. So I went occasionally, right? It was a nice thing to do. Go outside, get some exercise, make some new friends Next thing you know, you win a few games, you know, you get pretty good, and people are saying, hey, you're, you're okay at this. And then the competitive fire starts to, like, grow in you. Next thing you know, you're going out and you're buying an expensive paddle or, or two, you know, buy pickleball shoes. Yep, that's right. That's right. I own, I actually own pickleball shoes. Then you start to sacrifice time away from your family, right? And next thing you know, your wife is confronting you as you're walking out the door holding this paddle and this wiffle ball in your pickleball shoes, and you're fighting about, like, time away from your family. You know, this little desire to play pickleball has now manifested itself to the point where you're fighting over your wife about it. Desires can escalate quickly. So when desires aren't kept in check, they can grow much bigger than they should be. Those big desires we have can profoundly shape how we run our lives and interact with other people James is saying that when you have a worldly passion that's not not aligned with God's wisdom, it will create conflict. You know, everyone is out there, right, running around, striving to attain what they want. Wars happen as desires collide. I mean, this happens everywhere. We all have passions. You know, the word passion is taken from the Greek, hedonē, where we get our word hedonism which is the belief that pleasure is the ultimate good in life. Now pleasure being not sinful in itself, but if pleasure becomes your end goal in life, you're going to miss the mark as a believer. So what are the pleasures? What are the desires that you're tempted to live for? What are the what's the thing that's constantly knocking God off the throne in your heart? You know, some people live for worldly success, you know, a job or a career. You know, you can build these things into an identity, meaning that it's your whole purpose for living and, have, you know, having a successful career. You know, I need to be a somebody in this world. Maybe it's money, having a big, fat bank account where you're independent and you can do whatever you want to do. You know, Jesus talked about money a lot because I think he saw the danger of it having it master you. So you have success, money, sex could be one. And then you have the subtle things, right? Things like validation, peace and comfort. Now, now peace and comfort, now, I, I, would, I would raise my hand on that one, you know, because the kingdom of Rick loves his peace and comfort. I like the city of my heart to be tranquil and problem-free. You know, I, I picture, like, this nice, peaceful city with a secure wall around it, and if there's ever a breach into one of those city walls, hmm, It needs to get repaired quickly as possible to restore the peace. Because I know for me, the trouble with peace and comfort, as my heart's desire, is for me, sometimes I seek out to resolve issues too quickly, right? So I may overlook things that shouldn't be overlooked. You know, I avoid hard conversations with people. You know, the things in life, the significant things in life, Sometimes they take a little longer to resolve, to work through. And sometimes there's no quick fix to restore the peace and comfort. So it hurts me when my city wall is going to lay in ruin for a while. And that can be hard for me. Self-seeking desires that rule your heart can spin your life into disarray. Because desires can lead you to start to build an identity in something other than Christ. There is a danger when you let any desire in your life become the ultimate thing you live for. Whenever anything besides God becomes your ultimate thing, danger is right around the corner. And there's a, there's a word for something that rules you. I mean, it's called an idol. When an idol has trumped God in your heart, you're going to find conflict within yourself and you're going to find conflict with other people. And most importantly, you're going to find conflict with God. And we're going to get to that in a minute. An idol, right? It can never bring you the perfect joy and contentment that God can bring through Jesus Christ. God needs to be the ultimate thing we live for. So when your identity, when your heart is anchored in Christ as your ultimate thing, all those other things that I mentioned, money, success, peace, comfort, validation, Just seem to find their proper place in your life. You'll keep a proper perspective on them. Now, for some of you who are married, there's a temptation, I think, for some of us to make a God out of our spouse. Now, I have seen marriages crushed because one spouse has set up the other spouse to be their God. Or they wouldn't say that, but functionally, that's how they live. They look to their spouse for things that only God could really provide. And your spouse gets crushed under the expectation of you being their everything. Unrealistic expectations will cause you to have conflict and your marriage will feel like a failure. Human beings are fallen creatures and we sin. We do absolutely horrible things to one another, unintentionally and intentionally. So a spouse could never be your number one. A child could never be your number one. A friend could never be your number one. A fallen, sinful human being cannot be a functional God. But if God is the number one thing in your heart, the top of the pyramid, I promise you that your marriage will start to flourish and be healthy. You know why? Because you're going to start viewing each other through the lens of the gospel, extending mercy and forgiveness to one another. You're going to view each other as works in progress, right? You're going to celebrate the growth that you see in one another rather than just kind of dwelling on each other's shortcomings. And to me that's a marriage worth ha- worth having. You know, idols. John Calvin said that our hearts are an idol factory. If God's not in the center of our heart, we're going to constantly be looking for something to fill the void because our hearts are not neutral ground. We were made to worship something. Romans 125 captures this nicely. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So we are either worshiping the creator or the created. Verse 2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Okay, so when we have this created thing controlling our heart and set up really as our purpose for living, we're going to fight to attain it. We're going to fight to keep it. We're going to fight to have things our way, and we're going to fight others who get in the way. So when we have an idol, you know, as our driving force, we're going to view people in one of two ways. I'm either going to look at you as a vehicle, a means for getting what I want, or I'm going to view you as an obstacle in the way of getting what I want. You're going to help me with my desire or you're going to be in the way of my desire. Self-centered desires cause us to dehumanize one another. So when we view each other as obstacles to our desires, we grow angry. We grow impatient with one another. All those one another commands that we've memorized go out the window. We're going to do the opposite. We're going to hurt each other to do what we want. This is going to destroy your relationships, your communities, your churches. Even in church life, you know, people have competing desires, everyone fighting for themselves. There's envy, jealousy, selfish ambition. The church is no exception. And James is warning his readers that these desires are going to kill your community. These desires compromise our mission to take the good news of the gospel out into the world. You know, James says we murder, we covet to obtain our desires. I I guess maybe sometimes literal murder, but I believe this has more to do with Jesus' teaching that we murder someone when we're angry with them in our hearts. Let's look at the rest of uh, verse 2 and verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Friend, how often do we just lift up godless prayers We really don't have anything to do with the will of God. We just pray to God for stuff. You know, our tendency is to pray for the things that will serve our desires, right? It's weird because we're praying to God for worldly things that will ultimately move us away from God. And then we grow frustrated with God when he doesn't give us what we want. We view God as kind of like this great vending machine in the sky, right? And if we just hit the right combination of letters and numbers, the desire that we want is going to drop right into our hands. You know, in 2008, I went through the hardest time ever in my life. <laughs> you know, financially, relationship-wise, it was, it was a mess. And I, I prayed and prayed for God to somehow supply me with hundreds of thousands of dollars, to pay off all the debt I had when the real estate market blew up. You know, I was, I was a home flipper, and I took some crazy risk, and I, I got caught on the short end of the stick. So I prayed to God. I wanted God, give me that quick financial fix. Give me back to even. You know, that's all I asked for. God said no. I went through years of rebuilding, doing the hard things that I had no desire to do. I had to change my lifestyle I had to learn to rely on God in the day-to-day. I had to deal with creditors calling me all the time, friends like church members who were my business partners that also lost money with me. It was a mess everywhere. But with each step, you know, God met me. With every hard conversation, I felt like God was just sitting there right next to me just saying, "Stay, stay with this, stay with this. And now the weird thing is I look back and I hold that time in my life, like, really dear. It's what cemented my Christian life. I didn't realize how worldly I was until I went through that. My, my relationship got, with God had deteriorated. So if God didn't allow me to go through that time, who knows what my relationship would be with him today. You know, he didn't, re, he didn't answer my request to fill out my bank account because he, he knew the road that I needed so, so when my trial first started, I quickly said, you know what? If God doesn't fix this, that means he doesn't love me. Almost guilting God into giving me what I want. That's, that's kind of sick, isn't it? But, but because he didn't quick fix it, I became more aware of his love than ever with the way he met me on that road time and time again. James goes on in, in verse 4 and says, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I mean, adulterous. Like, really, James, you were just calling me brother. I mean, this seems pretty harsh. You know, what are you saying here, James? Well, he's saying that friendship with the world results in spiritual adultery against God. And this spiritual adultery has resulted in a conflict with God. It has resulted in enmity with God. So, James is digging deeper here. He is saying that our problem is not fundamentally that we don't love other people enough. No, no, our problem runs deeper than that. He is saying that we don't love God enough. We're adulterous. He's using Old Testament language where God describes his relationship with his people like a marriage. And when people go off after other things, he equates that with marital unfaithfulness. This creates enmity. Enmity means the state or feeling of being actively opposed to someone or something. Jeremiah 3.20 says, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So the more and more we're shaped by worldly wisdom the more and more we betray God. So don't miss, you know, the the pain of adultery is wrapped up in this image. Think about when a man is having an affair on his wife. Is he not at that moment an enemy of that marriage? Anytime that I choose my will, my way, I stand as an enemy to the purposes of God. You know, God is the betrayed husband. So so Christian, please do not... Declare your love for God with your lips, but yet derive all your pleasures, all your entertainment into things that are hostile to God. I mean, I evaluate myself. Is my week just full of mindless entertainment that really glorify life apart from God? Entertainment that just seems to endorse the popular idea that just follow your heart, do what makes you happy? I mean, this is the very thing that James is warning us about right here. And we invite these things into our homes daily. I mean, don't you think absorbing these things is going to affect your mindset, your view of the world, the view of yourself, the view of God? We are called to be in the world but not of the world. Salt and light, but do not be conformed to the world's image. Do not set yourself up as God's enemy. Verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in you? God is jealous over you. The reality is that we should be cast off for our spiritual adultery. But the faithful God who chose us, remember it was nothing that you did that brought you to God. He chose us, chooses to remain faithful to you. But he is a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14 says, You shall... Worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. He is jealous over you. Now, this isn't some insecure jealousy where he's afraid that you're going to go and find something better, like he's just waiting by the phone. Like, oh, why isn't he called for a while? No, this is this is God who wants what's best for you. This is your maker saying, uh-uh, I didn't I didn't make you for that. You were made for me. So so here we are, five verses in, and I'm, I'm hoping that you see the calls for conflicts. You know, we have these desires, right? Conflict within ourselves, really, two people living within us, the earthly man and the spiritual man, duking it out. It's a conflict with God, which leads to conflict with others. So what are we to do, right? I'm weak. There's days I just fall way short. I mean, we're, we're just, we're fickle people, aren't we? One minute, red hot for the purposes of God, next, off mission. We are distracted by the passions of this world. I mean, I have days that my life looks no different than my non-Christian neighbor, and he looks more Christian than me. And, I mean, how do we cure this condition? How do we live in godly wisdom that brings about godly desires? Second point, the cure for conflict. So verse 6, here, here's, here's where the hope comes in. But he gives more grace. Now we're not talking about a saving grace which brings you into a relationship with Jesus. This is literally translated greater grace. God supplies what you need to overcome this fallen world. Augustine put it this way. God gives what he demands. We will never run out of God's grace. Whatever our situation no matter how deep we are in sin, whatever our need, grace is there to help us overcome. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us, draw, then draw near, <clears throat> let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I'm telling you, whatever your situation, whatever damage you've done in your relationship, damage that just seems irreparable, God's grace gives us hope. Remember, it's God's saving grace that brought us to him him in the first place. So let's not forget our Savior. You know, Jesus walked this earth. He faced all the temptations that we face. He knows. He cares. And guess what? When Jesus was here, he did everything sinlessly and perfectly. And then he chose to die, to die for us. He overcame the world. He absorbed the wrath that was ours, gave us his righteousness, brought us into God's family, right? Right? Even, that's the reason we're even having this discussion, because we are God's child, and he wants us. God supplies you with the grace to do whatever he is calling you to do, not what you think you should do. So we can be courageous knowing that we, when we, that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So it's take the first step to change the things that you know need changing because his grace is just waiting for you. The rest of verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So it's time to come out of the shadows, come out of the dark places, you know, where we cover our sin. Let's make it a habit to confess our sin to God. Let's spend daily time in prayer acknowledging our sin, thanking God for the price he paid for us. Let's surround ourselves with people who we can be completely honest with, sharing all our shortcomings, right? I urge you to stop acting like you have it all together because I'm telling you, you're a mess. I'm a mess, you know? We, but yet we are the people that God chose for his family. We are his church. Humble yourself. Put it out there to God. Confess your sins. Bring your sins to light. You know, the devil keeps his power over you when you keep your sins in the dark. Speaking of the devil, let's read verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So James is telling us to resist the devil. I want you to consider what James is saying. So if you believe in the devil, this being of enormous power, really the most powerful evil being there is, James is saying that you can resist him. Now how in the world can you do that? Especially considering in the previous verse, God is calling us to be humble. So how do humility and defeating the devil go together? Because James is calling you to be humble and yet to not be afraid of the devil. He's saying, take him on. When James is saying, so when James is saying that I don't want you to be afraid of the devil, he's really saying, I don't want you to be afraid of anything. So how does that go along with being humble? And does it? It sure does. Let's look at the life of Moses, right? So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. So let's put this in the context. So Moses went before the most powerful leader, the most powerful figure in the world, and basically said, I want you to give up your entire free labor force, which is really the cornerstone of your superiority right now, your economic superiority. And I want you to do that uh, right now, without condition immediately. I mean that's pretty bold, pretty courageous, isn't it? And then we but then we read in numbers 12 where it's written that Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. Now you see what it's saying now, I don't want you to miss this. Moses wasn't being courageous and brave despite being humble, he was being courageous and brave because he was humble. The Bible does not define humility as a weakness but rather of thinking of yourself less. It's looking at yourself less. It's not being so focused and obsessed with yourself. You know why? Because inside, you are supremely confident of who you are and of your great worth because you know Jesus has taken care of your greatest need. Humility isn't a lack of confidence. It's focusing on yourself less. A humble person is focused more on God and others than, other, than himself. So what made Moses courageous and such a great leader is that he was consumed with the purposes of God and had a heart for his people. So when he went before Pharaoh, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was just doing what God called him to do. His humility gave courage because he stopped thinking about himself. Think about it. What's what's the heart of being a coward, right, when you're a coward? It's thinking about yourself. What's at the heart of courage? It's not thinking about yourself. Humility is going to slay the devil every time because the devil uses schemes that focus on fulfilling your worldly desires. So you you remove those worldly desires and yourself out of the equation. What does he really have left to work with? So you just say, I don't care. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. You can be courageous, a courage that stems from humility. Humility. So resist him. When he's trying to lead you to be angry, discouraged, doubt, when he's trying to lead you into another conflict, resist him. There's grace for that. Let's, let's look at verses uh, 8 through 10 together. Um, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So we're fleeing the devil and drawing near to God in humility. Go after God, and he's going to go after you. Prodigal son, Luke 15, 20. So the son arose, came to his father, but while he was still you know, a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. The, fa- the father is waiting for you to return. Now, some of you have been rolling around in the mud for a while now. Lay aside your pride and go home and humble yourself. So, But what's the best way to breed humility in your life? One thing I would suggest to read Philippians 2. What did Christ do? Christ laid aside everything, right, for the sake of us. Spend time dwelling on the character of God. Read the word and have a healthy view of his holiness as well. Get to know the character of God, really get to know His holiness, view who you are in light of who He is. You know, don't don't compare yourself with another human being because you're going to always find some schmo that you look that makes you look really good. You know, no, no, God is the standard. So when we do this and we see how how fall short, how, how we fall short time and time again. You know, it points us back to the gospel of why we have a Savior in the first place. You know, sometimes we can get puffed in our head in arrogance. But when we go back to the gospel, when we truly see who we are in light of God's holiness, I think that leads to repentance, don't you? We, we've sinned. And when we sin, and when we view our sin in light of God's holiness, it breaks us. This, this has been a challenging verse for me this week because it's like, do I really mourn over my sin do I weep over my sin, or do I just say, uh, "Jesus has got it"? You know, I know for me, I can become aware of sin in my life, right? But I don't think awareness is the same thing as like repentance. Does does my sin bring me to tears? Can't remember the last time it did that. You know, I'm aware of my sin, but does the weight of it ever cause me to change? So being aware of your sin is not the same as repentance. Or feeling sorrow for your sin only when you're caught in your sin. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief will help us change directions, right? Instead of walking away from God, we're going to walk towards him. So let me encourage you this week, just get away from the noise for a little bit. Go find a quiet place, be with Jesus pray your heart read his word find out what's important to him what are his desires what are the purposes that you can discern you know worship team you can start you can start to come up james says uh, cleanse your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double minded i mean that's pretty direct you know i think we all need a friend like james in our lives james is talking about Cleaning yourself up inside and out. The hands, you know, represent like our deeds and actions. Purify your hearts, meaning your motives and intentions. God, uh, James uses this term double-minded again. Double-minded people lack integrity because you're really trying to be two people at once. So stop sowing the seeds in your life that make you feel distant from God. More focused time on God and others and less on ourselves. Now, don't you think that when we, when we do this, right, doesn't it make sense that when we do find ourselves in a conflict and we have this humble mindset, right, of really who we are in light of God and the gospel, don't you think that we're going to work through things a whole lot better when we do have a dispute? We may even get the courage to actually take the first step towards reconciliation with someone that we're currently in a conflict with. Something that has just gone on, like, way too long. And humility might actually lead you to owning your share of the conflict. Because you know what? Humility, when you're humble, it has a way of opening up the other person's heart. It's different. So our big idea today, through God's grace, we can resist worldly desires and find peace. Let me leave, leave you with one thought here. So our unity as a church, our unity is important. It was important to Jesus. Listen to G- Jesus' words in John 17, 20 to 21. So I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may. Also, may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So, in verse 20, we see Jesus not only praying for himself and his disciples, but he's praying for us. You see, he says, For those who will believe in me through their word. You know, that's us. And what's his prayer? That we would all be one. Just as he, the Father, and the Spirit are one. He prays that we would be united. And what's the purpose of this unity? As witness to the rest of the world. Jesus is saying, may they be in complete oneness so the world may believe you are the one who sent me. He's saying the number one one tool that I am giving you to evangelize the world is the beauty and the love that you have.